Profiles in Cinemania, Handmade Films. By now, you've no doubt heard some person assert smugly, Hollywood is so liberal. Maybe it was something you heard spouted by some radio or TV pundit. Maybe it was your right-wing uncle at table. Maybe it's something you've even said yourself. <laughs> well, it's time for a little lesson. The Golden Rule of Hollywood. He who has the gold makes the rules. Now write that down. Maybe write it down backward on your forehead with a magic marker in big block capital so you remember every time you look in the mirror. Tinseltown is only as liberal as the conservative investment bankers who hold its purse strings allow it to be. That goes double for the distributors and the deals they have with movie houses and VOD platforms. You want to get your picture greenlit? Get it out in front of people's eyeballs? It better not be an idea that shakes up the status quo too hard because that shit messes with the bag, you dig? The studios control most of the financing, the means of distribution, and the promotion and advertising, so even if you got your green light from somewhere outside the studio system, you still have to play ball sooner or later. Got it? Good. Now, let me tell you the tale of a film production company that really did shake up the status quo. At least for a little while. Much as most things were during the 1970s, including many of us here at the Cinemania Society, Handmade Films was conceived over a joint. This particular bit of gunge was shared between ex-Beatle George Harrison and then-current Monty Python member Eric Idle in the projection booth during a screening of, what else, Monty Python and the Holy Grail. To understand how Handmade came to be, first we need to examine the genesis of that film, the film that birthed a million nerds. Back in the mid-70s, the idea that there could be a film production and distribution company independent of the shackles of studio control was so much idle talk and fantasy. The studio system had a stranglehold on the means of production and distribution, and frankly still does as far as that goes. Consider how hot the Monty Python troupe was in the 70s, when you could tune in to reruns of The Flying Circus. Even with the comedy series being aired in international syndication and their comedy albums flying off the shelves, they still couldn't get their foot in the door. Sure, Flying Circus had been a hit, but it was just another TV series. The money men didn't want to roll the dice on a movie featuring a troupe of edgy, surrealist comedians just because they'd managed to pull off a TV show that made hippie kids laugh. They were all stoned. They'd laugh at anything. It'd be like if they tried to make a movie about the monkeys. <laughs> Christ, could you imagine? Wait, what do you mean they did? Oh, come on, really? Anyway, the Pythonites didn't take no for an answer. They eventually got Monty Python and the Holy Grail made, and it achieved near-immediate cult status, in part because it thumbed its nose at audiences, studios, distributors, and censors alike. The shoestrings on which it had been made had been provided by three of the hottest bands of the era, Led Zeppelin, Pink Floyd, and Jethro Tull. Talk about street cred, am I right? And they'd done it all themselves. The man didn't own a nickel of it. It was the mid-70s. Punk was in, and Python proved they were punk as fuck. Still, though, Doing it all yourself is hard work. The Pythons wanted to follow it up, and while I'm certain there must have been some discussion about how badass it would be to get the establishment to go along with slaughtering sacred cows, we're sure they were more thinking, wouldn't it also be nice if our hard-won influence could get us a real budget and a real distribution scheme? After all, the money men already realized they'd missed the boat with Holy Grail, and surely they'd be damned if they'd miss it again. Whatever the thought process, when the Pythonites rolled up with their next pitch, media mega conglomerate EMI greenlit the package sight unseen. Cut to 1978, when Monty Python's follow-up picture, The Life of Brian, was just a couple weeks away from rolling film, when someone at EMI finally decided to read the script at which they'd blindly chucked three million pounds sterling. Everything came to a screeching halt. No. No! It was blasphemous, sacrilegious, it made a mockery of God. Just think of the controversy, the repercussions, picketers. 
sternly worded editorials, nasty letters, picketers. EMI pulled the plug. Like we said before, the man will only let you get so far on his dime and no farther. And the Pythonites learned that lesson the hard way. Python pounced on a plane to parlay a pitch with pop player, pot party pal, George. Womp womp. Yes, I said George, not Paul. No, not George Lucas. No, not George Miller either. There were three big Georges who got into filmmaking in the late 70s. We're talking about George Harrison, the ex-Beatle, remember? Anyhow, George remembered Eric Idle from their conversation and from the Flying Circus, which he said had helped him get through the depression he'd had during the breakup of the Beatles. Harrison came up with the three million pounds on the spot. We suspect he probably found it just by feeling around under his couch cushions. The Beatles were famously said to be bigger than Jesus, after all. We also suspect George probably wanted to take the piss out of the studios, the money men, and the other gatekeepers who had been stymieing his creative impulses for the past two decades. Either way, Eric Idle was later quoted as saying, George Harrison is one of the few morally good people rock and roll has produced. George then made a fateful decision, one that would come to haunt him in his later years. He turned to his friend Dennis O'Brien. O'Brien was an American finance guru to whom Peter Sellers had brokered an introduction when Harrison needed to organize his Beatles bucks a few years earlier. Harrison wanted O'Brien to run the shop in the nascent company, and Harrison would provide the funding. Thus, Handmade Films was founded, initially to give the Pythonites a new lease on Life of Brian. But, you ask, who among George Harrison, Dennis O'Brien, and Eric Idle fulfills which role? Mary, Joseph, or God? Well, we'll leave it up to you listeners to decide. And so it was in 1979 that Monty Python's Life of Brian, a film that shamelessly lampoons the life and times of Jesus Christ, was released. And it was sacrilegious. Oh, there was indeed controversy. There were sternly worded editorials. There were nasty letters. There was a great deal of picketing. And it all only served to make the movie a smashing success, proving once again that all press is good press if you always look on the bright side of life. The next year, Handmade picked up another film that had gotten its funding and had made it through production, but which couldn't find a distributor because it was just too controversial. John Mackenzie's The Long Good Friday, a vicious, cutting story set in the London underworld. No, I'm not talking about the goddamn subway. I'm talking about the criminal element. Organized crime. Golly, you mean the London underclass isn't just a bunch of cute chimney sweeps and boot blacks who wear flat caps and quit pip pip cheerio governor like in Mary Poppins? You mean England only puts on airs of being civilized? Hey, 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 hey. If you talked about gangsters honestly, people might realize it's gangsters all the way down. You know, nudge, nudge, wink, wink. Bob's your uncle, Fanny's your aunt. John for tea, maybe I shan't. Don't say boo to the vicar. All right? <clears throat> well, as we've already established, Handmade was founded to say edgy things people didn't want said, and the Long Good Friday definitely made a statement. Bob Hoskins put on a performance described as the most intense mob boss since Edward G. Robinson played Little Caesar. The picture was even nominated for a BAFTA. We like to think here at the Cinemania Society that Al Pacino was inspired in Scarface by Bob Hoskins, who did it first and better. 1981 was a big year for Handmade. They picked up and distributed several horror-slash-thrillers, Venom, Tattoo, and The Burning, as well as John McKenzie's next gangster film, A Sense of Freedom. This one was a biopic on real-world gangster Jimmy Boyle, Scotland's most violent man, but it was as much an indictment of the UK's justice system and the second-class state of Scottish society as anything. Up on the Cinemania Society's corkboard, there's a piece of red yarn drawing a direct connection between this film and Danny Boyle's masterpiece, Trainspotting. Uh, Guys, hey, that board's getting real big. 
That same year, Handmade released its second in-house production, Time Bandits, which was written and directed by another Pythonite, Terry Gilliam. We here at the Cinemania Society have already chronicled Time Bandits in our sixth conclave, and we've already done a profile on that purveyor of Cinemania, Terry Gilliam. You'll have to go listen to those yourselves for the details, but suffice to say the excesses in making Time Bandits nearly drove Handmade into insolvency. Handmade recovered, even if Harrison reputedly never spoke to Gilliam again in his lifetime, and in 1982, the company veered into comedy. Gilliam notwithstanding, Handmade maintained close ties to the Monty Python troupe and produced the recording of Monty Python live at the Hollywood Bowl. They also took a chance on a third Pythonite, Michael Palin, with the comedy Missionary. Their final film of 82 was Privates on Parade, a gay musical farce which poked fun at the Malayan Emergency, or as we call it here in the United States, Britain's Vietnam. Over the next four years, 83 to 86, Handmade produced five more films, mostly a combination of comedies and thrillers. The standouts from this period were A Private Function, another Palin-driven comedy, and Mona Lisa, another London gangland thriller featuring Bob Hoskins. Neither were smashing financial successes, but both earned plaudits aplenty. On the strength of his performance in Mona Lisa, Bob Hoskins in particular won a fistful of awards, a BAFTA, a Golden Globe, and a coveted Palm d'Or, all for Best Actor. In 1987, alongside two other fairly obscure and overlooked films, Handmade produced one of its most radiant sources of cinemania since Time Bandits. Yes, I'm speaking of the infamous With Null and I, Bruce Robinson's ode to the come-down era, the film which launched the acting career of Richard E. Grant and one which Cinema Studies alums on both sides of the pond quote ad nauseum. It also featured Paul McGann, who would go on to play one of the Doctors Who. The next three years saw Handmade put out a grand total of eight films, all of which were box office bombs. Notable titles included How to Get Ahead in Advertising and Nuns on the Run, a cross-dressing buddy crimedy featuring Eric Idle and Robbie Coltrane. By this point, however, Harrison's coffers were straining under the debts O'Brien had run up during this period, and in 1991, Handmade ceased operation. The end of Handmade films is as tawdry as it is tragic. After 1991, relations soured between George Harrison and Dennis O'Brien, then bittered when Harrison sued O'Brien over alleged fraud and mismanagement. The court proceedings found O'Brien responsible for these claims, and in 1996, he was ordered to repay Harrison $11 million, less than half of the $25 million in damages Harrison had originally demanded. O'Brien nearly immediately declared bankruptcy, and Harrison spent the remainder of his life fighting in court to get his money back from O'Brien until he finally died of lung cancer in 2001. Meanwhile, Handmade was sold off to Canadian firm Paragon Entertainment, which restarted production under the Handmade label. The new Handmade brought things full circle when it produced Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels in 1998. This tongue-in-cheek ode to the London underworld featured many of the second-string cast of The Long Good Friday and launched the careers of both Guy Ritchie and Jason Statham. Lockstock spun off a television series and kicked off an entire new generation of British gangster movies to boot. Handmade films lingered almost another 20 years, a hollowed-out shell of once greatness. It changed hands a second time in 2006, but between 1999 and 2010, it only put out six more films. None are worth mentioning except for its last gasp in 2010, Danny Boyle's excruciating 127 hours. However you slice it, you really have to hand it to James Franco for that picture. After 127 hours, Handmade continued hemorrhaging money until it was liquidated in 2013. Park Circus acquired the rights to the company's film library in 2016, and following an investigation in 2017, three of its directors received a government ban on acting as the director of a company after it was found they'd misappropriated funds. The company was finally dissolved in 2018. Dennis O'Brien died three years after that in 2021, surviving George Harrison by a full 20 years. That old saw about the good die young while assholes live forever comes to mind. 
The story of handmade films, tragic though it is, serves to teach a second Hollywood axiom. Got that magic marker ready? Here it goes. Everybody's friends until money gets involved. Handmade did some amazing things. It's responsible for some real gems of cinema. Hell, it even kicked the studio system in the teeth for a little while. But in the end, greed and stupidity brought it down. But aren't those always the reason we can't have nice things? This has been another profile on Cinemania. This episode is written and performed by Ethan Ireland and Andy Slack. Music by Meteor at meteormusic.com Profiles in Cinemania is a product of the Cinemania Society, LLC.